Hey, Sam here. This is the final episode of our psychedelic series. It was awesome to put together. And so if you liked everything so far, please take a moment to rate us five stars in Apple Podcasts or leave a comment on CastBox while you're listening to this. Also, just to note before we get into the episode, the audio quality is a little fuzzy on our guest side, but his story is awesome. So stick through it. Okay, here's the episode. We tried to get a bunch of people from different religious, spiritual backgrounds who were priests or rabbis or monks or nuns, uh, and to bring them in here and have these psilocybin sessions. Uh, people have these really difficult experiences sometimes is that they think that they're dying, which can be you know, terrifying. Uh, he was laying on the couch, which is a sort of normal default position, and he just kind of popped up and said, Bye, guys. Like, what do you mean by it? He's like, oh, well, I'm dying. There's often a sort of feeling of death and then rebirth after these types of experiences, so this feeling of being reborn. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner, and today's show is the fifth and final episode of our series on psychedelics. So in this series, we looked at the way revolutionary thinkers defy societal norms in order to advance medicine, redefine culture, and occasionally recalibrate our minds. So this movement began brewing in the 60s and has slowly been edging its way into the mainstream since. And you've seen it through like Silicon Valley elites, microdosing, or government-approved psychedelic therapies. With this series, we've been highlighting the people who have helped lead the way. And today, we're speaking to Albert Garcia Romeo, a researcher at Johns Hopkins University who has been studying psychedelics for just over two decades. The work there is incredible, and he's examined the effects of these drugs on everyone from smokers to priests. His story takes us through literature, philosophy, and countless questions about life and prosperity, ultimately winding us back to the promising future of psychedelics, therapeutics, and the push for destigmatization. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. Before we tackle all of that, let me invite you along to join Albert and me in the humid warmth of the South in Miami Shores, Florida. Yeah, I remember growing up in uh, Miami Shores, you know, trying to fit in. I think like a lot of kids when you're growing up, you're trying to form a social identity and you know get a peer network and make friends and all that stuff. Um, but I always kind of probably had a hard time with that. I was kind of a nerdy, fat kid. I didn't play sports. My family was always pretty close-knit and supportive, which is a good thing, and very all-in with education. So we read a ton of books. Did you enjoy it? I did. I I always liked school and reading. You know, my parents were kind of sci-fi nerds as well, you know, into Star Trek and reading Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein you know, all these kind of classic science fiction books, which then, you know, my brother and sister and I inherited. So we had a lot of that in our upbringing as well. Was there any any subject that you were attracted to that you're like, oh, like this seems to be my future or the future that I can like enact into the world? My main interest tended to kind of fall more towards arts. I like to draw and paint and eventually I started to write poetry. And I What kind of poetry? Um, well, I mean, the type of poetry that immediately attracted me when I started reading it was a modernist poetry of the early 20th century. Um, T.S. Eliot was a huge influence on me. Um, I was reading a lot when I was 15, 16, 17, and that drew me in. The influence T.S. Eliot had on Albert's teenage years represents a larger trend towards the shifting of his perspective. T.S. Eliot's writing is rich with images, and many of his pieces feel almost dreamlike, like these lingering recollections of faded memory. Woven into his poetry lies countless references to time, the blurring between past, present, and future. It feels like, for a brief moment at least, you're in an alternate reality. Poetry, like painting or science fiction, opens doors to other worlds, ones that may or may not resemble your own. And Albert tapped into this. Art was expanding the boundaries of his mind, introducing a variety of fields that would connect later in life. But for right now, art was just the beginning. So did you also get into like the philosophical aspects of poetry or philosophy in general? 
Uh, I started reading existentialist philosophy like Sartre and Camus and stuff like that when I was about 16, and it got me interested in you know, thinking about my, mankind and our place in the world and uh, kind of the bigger picture uh, questions. Were you developing and curating your own philosophy or gravitating towards a specific school of thought where it's like, this is kind of how I'm, or this is like the trend in which I want to live my life? I think at the time I, I was initially very much drawn to uh, existentialist philosophy. Uh, which is what? Well, it's really kind of looking at the meaning and purpose of existence and whether or not there is such a thing. And, you know, if there is, then what is it? And how do you get in touch with that? And, you know, I had a long period when I was in uh, my early 20s in college where I was uh, reading deeply into Nietzsche and his work. And I also, I think, was immediately attracted to Taoism, philosophical Taoism. It's about being in harmony with the Tao, with nature, kind of the universal principles and, you know, within humanity's kind of place there that, you know, it's good to be uh, simple and to be uh, humble and in harmony with the natural course of things. Taoism first took root during the East Han Dynasty, dating back a couple thousand years in what we now know as China. Its foundation rests on the Tao, meaning the way, which basically encapsulates all things from the cosmos to the spiritual to humankind itself. And in these different spaces that the Tao envelops, we're meant to find balance, seek humility, and ultimately achieve harmony, a sense of oneness. So I can't help but connect the dots here between the interests that Albert was drawn to in his younger years, such as art and poetry, and his eventual deep dive into philosophy. Both of these worlds seem to converge at one common point. How do we interpret life? It's this question that seems to propel Albert forward and carry him to some unlikely places. That philosophy, or, or I guess embodying that philosophy, seems that it would lead towards a steeping in the natural world. How did you start getting interested in the U.S. Forest Service? I guess I'm probably about 21 at this point. I had been hugely fortunate to find this circle of amazing friends who I was very close-knit with. And me and some of our other friends were talking about how we could go do something adventurous, I suppose. And uh, fortunately, one of my very good friends, uh, Jesse Phillips, his family had a long history of working with the U.S. Forest Service in Montana uh, around the Glacier National Park. And so they were able to put us in contact with Forest Service representatives out there. And eventually, you know, we had applied for jobs and we got positions uh, working out there. Was there is, is there like a, uh, a moment or a story that you think embodies like the ruggedness or if there was ruggedness of that endeavor? Yeah, you would hike 10, 15, 20 miles out into the wilderness, like away from civilization and you know, roads and all that kind of thing. And yeah, we were just staying out there for uh, weeks at a time, not coming out. And it was, uh, it was pretty incredible. Packing up gear and hiking 20 miles out into the Montana wilderness is, by most standards, a pretty rugged adventure. Albert and his buddies were growing restless, and having explored the experiences of countless philosophers and literary legends, he now itched for his own experiences. With sore feet and a strong, lingering smell of campfire, I imagine these camping trips were not like experiences he'd read about. Perhaps something along the lines of what 19th century philosopher Henry David Thoreau wrote about in Walden, or what Taoists spoke of when emphasizing the necessity of respect for nature. It was a departure from the self, a convergence with nature, and it would open the gates to a personal revival. I feel like in the combination with your interest in philosophy, especially Taoism, uh, I imagine meditation became a key part of something that you were also exploring. Part of my desire to go be in the Forest Service, for instance, was uh, trying to have other types of learning experiences that were more embodied. I think with meditation, it was another kind of interesting coincidence, but one of the teaching assistants for one of my classes on the philosophy of mind and consciousness had started a meditation group. 
you know, in the evenings, uh, he would have people come meet in the chapel, which was just behind the, the uh, humanities building. And we would go there to practice different types of meditation. That was the first time I had kind of formally sat and practiced uh, any meditation. And it was another kind of uh, very important and eye-opening experience for me because it was more of the embodied type of experience and much less of, you know, reading about something. It was more of a kind of experiencing directly what it's like to have a change in the way that your mind is working or the way that you're experiencing yourself or the world around you. What did that lead to, that change in mind? Eventually, we started to practice kind of like a sample of different types of meditation. Uh, and when we did one week of uh, metta, which is a loving-kindness meditation, where you spend time kind of trying to cultivate actual feelings of love and compassion for yourself, for other people, particularly for you know people you care about, but then you sort of start to expand the circle more widely to you know even people that may be difficult for you to have positive feelings towards or you know people that you've never met or all of creation you know as you kind of expand that outwards i had a, a very profound opening at one point where i just was sitting there meditating and doing the practice with the group and um, i think there was a point where it was kind of over. We bring kind of like a little chime. And I opened my eyes and I was just crying. It's, you know, it's tears streaming down my face. Um, and I had kind of had this, you probably call it a heart opening experience where I felt kind of plugged into universal love. I, I'm not really sure how else to put it. Uh, but I had this very intense embodied experience of feeling love, not just uh, maybe feeling love, but almost like being love. And so that was pretty powerful. It was formative for me because it kind of, to me, represented this boundary of shifting our perception and our sense of self in a way where we could feel very differently. And that, to me, seemed to be kind of full of possibilities that we hadn't talked about in the rest of my regular Western psychology classes. Shifting perception and sense of self, pushing the boundaries of his mind, these things serve as a common thread running through Albert's formative years. But meditation served as something different. It wasn't like poetry where he found himself submerged in the worlds of others. It was this intimate sense of oneness with the intangible, with love and compassion for others as well as himself. These sensations are real and it could be life altering, but the effects aren't limited to the surface. A 2016 study demonstrated that mindfulness meditation, which trains attention to one's present moment, has the ability to improve a variety of issues, including stress and physical well-being. Meditation may change the resting state of brain networks, something that assists in controlling emotions, stress, and can improve one's health. But while meditation can help regulate what's going on on the inside, can't regulate what's going on outside. And Albert was preparing to face a new world of uncertainty. So like looking towards graduation, like what do you think you're going to do with your life? Well, you know, I didn't really know. And uh, I was kind of perplexed at what, you know, came next after college. You know, even going to college, I didn't have any clear sense of what I wanted to be doing or where I wanted to, to go with my life. And so a lot of my studies were just kind of focused on you know, whatever I found of interest at the time. And it ended up, you know, largely being a you know, mix of psychology classes, which was my major, and then, and then uh, you know, philosophy. And, you know, when you get out of college and that's what you studied, it kind of, there's not a lot you can do per se without more schooling. You know, I didn't find anything incredibly promising that felt like it was calling me. Um, and I was kind of struggling, honestly, because I think until that point, I excelled in school. But then after that, you kind of come to this precipice where there's not a clear path forward. You know, you don't really know, like, okay, now this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I think that was daunting for me because I always, I always thought I knew, you know, what, what I was supposed to be doing. And so to have that kind of 
rug pulled out from under you uh, was very existentially disorienting. And so that really kind of went part and parcel with just having a mental health crisis towards the end of my college career. I felt like there was probably not really any purpose in going forward any further. I didn't feel like there was any reason to be alive or to exist. Drinking um, and partying a lot, sometimes, you know, for fun and enjoying it, but other times I think almost as a means of escapism. And so I think all of those things sort of spiraled into this sort of acute crisis of, you know, what's next? And I don't know. And not having that answer, I think, was very frightening and difficult. Um, And even with, you know, all the friends and family and support that I had, still feeling like maybe there's just no reason to go go on anymore. In a way, kind of gave up. I said, you know, I'm not going to go to school anymore. And I ended up coming home uh, to live with my parents for a while. And that was a dark time and it was a difficult time because I didn't have any clear view of where I was going to land. And that was a time when I was doing some soul searching, I guess, and trying to figure out what my place was supposed to be. You know, I did stuff like load boxes into the back of FedEx trucks for a while, you know, working as a bartender for a good amount of time, kind of just drifting along. I remember the people I worked with in FedEx because, you know, I was this college kid, this overeducated college kid who hadn't really done a lot of manual labor and like working with these guys and kind of spending time with them. Um, that was a really good experience for me because I felt like I was uh, kind of in my element. I mean, these people were not worried about the existential reasons of, of you, know, what, you know, what is life and what is our purpose on this planet. They were working to feed their kids and they were happy with that. And I think that was, that was pretty good for me to be around that experience and um, have those guys be kind of like this you know, working class group of just, you know, band of brothers. Albert is an epidemic, but he surrounded himself with this culture of manual labor and partying. He's not putting his education to use in Miami and honestly not utilizing everything you've been working on for years would cause anyone to freak out. But Albert's interest in existentialism magnifies these emotions. Existentialism constantly looks at the big questions like, who am I? What is my real nature or identity? What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of existence? What is my greater purpose? These questions are tough on the psyche. But that last question, what is my greater purpose, seems especially tough for Albert to answer, especially while aimlessly bartending. He's stuck in a cycle of endless work and endless doubt about the future. And I think anyone in that world would just want to escape. Could you talk a little bit about maybe someone that inspired that interest about like the psychology of drugs and addiction or that renewal towards just learning about that kind of thing? During my time there in in Miami when I was, again, between school and not knowing where I was going to end up uh, before I ended up back in graduate school, it was the lifestyle of... You know, we would go out and party and drink and lots of people were doing drugs, basically debauchery going on. Partially that was fun. I was, you know, in my early mid-20s and enjoyed nightlife and staying out until the sunrise. And it also reminded me a lot of, um, you know, some of the literature that really kind of drew me in when I was growing up, you know, so particularly works of like The Lost Generation, like Hemingway and Fitzgerald. We talked about like this kind of vapid party culture where, you know, in the Great Gatsby, for instance, you know, people are having you know, these roaring 20s parties and, you know, spending lavishly and, and drinking too much. When is partying vapid? Like, is there not vapid partying? Yeah, I struggle with that. So, I mean, to come back to Nietzsche, I mean, a lot of his early work was about sacramental partying and like kind of like this what he calls this split between Dionysus and Apollo. Dionysus representing this sort of uh, ecstasy that could be preached uh, in a way that was maybe like a religious or trance-like type of state that people could enter. 
um, and a way to kind of commune with a higher power of sorts or with the larger group. Push that against the dynamic of Apollo being the sort of rational figure and, you know, very controlled. There was a time when I thought about partying and having fun as, you know, having that sort of element. And certainly when I was growing up, the rave scene in, in Miami and, uh, was you know, a big part of what was happening there in the you know, mid to the late 90s. And I think that the rave scene and electronic dance music culture in a way was young people were trying to have that type of ecstatic experience, similar to probably, you know, generations past having things like Woodstock and, you know, having that sort of culture. Um, and of course, you know, there's music and tied up in that and also drug use. What is the balance? For me, I'm wondering if the balance is being able to encounter something within that environment and bring something of substance out of it. Like if it feels like if everything is lost to the environment and doesn't translate, then maybe that's the vapidness. If like the, the feelings that you feel and the lessons that are learned only apply within that environment, then it's like, what does it matter? And are you actually learning anything that's like improving your life substantially? I think that's a good you know, potential place to, to draw the line, you know, um, for me, what I, you know, was sensing at the time, kind of playing and replaying the same type of night over and over again, um, and seeing that as my future and saying, is this how I want to keep living my life? And I think that was informed by the people around me and seeing that some of those people were quite a bit older than me and their life was still the same type of almost like playing the same record again and again. Yeah. The treadmill of superficial ecstasy. Yeah. I felt like it was almost a trap uh, to try to get sucked into that and to stay there any longer. And that was really what catapulted me out of Florida. The idea of being a product of your environment is a great callback to something Albert briefly touched on the lost generation. The era is defined by young adults coming of age while fighting in World War I. Everybody's fascinated with that era of the last generation. We think of it usually in the 1920s when there was great disenchantment and that led to some of the most extraordinary art, really a kind of renaissance, which we call modernism. Instead of following traditional career paths, many members of the lost generation, like Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald, turned to art they write about these interesting lives that many might think are vapid, right? You have the lavish parties of the Great Gatsby and the European leisure of The Sun Also Rises. These aren't traditional heroes' journeys or American dream stories. But there is something so captivating about this lifestyle. I think the Great Gatsby's Nick Carraway puts it best. He says, I was within and without simultaneously enchanted and repelled by the inexhaustible variety of life. This focus on partying and socializing fits this perfect balance Nick is talking about. It's a birth of tragedies, an equilibrium of chaos and harmony that might create meaning in what some see as a vapid lifestyle. But at the end of the day, it wasn't for Albert. He isn't Jay Gatsby or Nick Carraway. He will never find purpose here. He needs to get back to a world where he has purpose. Coming out of this environment, like, and thinking about doing, I, I, this this would be your PhD? Yeah, I uh, pretty much decided to go, as I was in this pretty clear mental crisis, you know, mental health crisis and maybe existential crisis when I was leaving college. Actually, I remember a professor of mine who was my Nietzsche professor, you know, his name is Michael Zimmerman. And he said, you, know, you should read Ken Wilber. He could tell, I mean, I was coming into class with a black eye, you know, I was like, it was clear that I was struggling in some ways. And that was something that I think I bought the book, put it on my shelf, didn't really come back to it until this period of my life, which was several years later, bartending and in that scene. And Wilbur's work was new pivot point for me where I read what he was doing, which was trying to sort of wed the schools of Western psychology and neuroscience and 
the history, the way that we know it, and some of those Eastern contemplative traditions and religious and spiritual uh, schools of thought and put them together in a comprehensive framework. And so when I read that, I was really excited. It kind of opened up a whole new world to me that, oh, there's this really, you know, there is actually this group of people who study this type of thing. And that was when I found my graduate school that uh, was in Palo Alto called the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology. You know, I didn't have any clue that that was even a thing. Um, I moved to Palo Alto, which in itself is sort of a hub of uh, very interesting people and, and culture. But also this kind of uh, off the mainstream graduate school uh, called Institute Transpersonal Psychology that was founded back in the 70s. That was you know, where I ended up landing uh, after we moved to Florida and really kind of uh, spending the next five years studying uh, psychology with a sort of spiritual angle to it. You know, that included furthering my own meditation practice, my education, you know, also developing my uh, dissertation project, which uh, ended up being about these sorts of transcendent experiences. Um, and, you know, I came to find that, you know, it had been a topic of study before, of course, and uh, people like Abraham Maslow talking about peak experiences and how these types of peak experiences were uh, important for people who were self-actualizing to sort of become more developed or, you know, reach their full potential. Conversely, there were other people who have uh, very intense altered states and experiences that sometimes end up with them in mental hospitals or having nervous breakdowns. And having been kind of on the verge of, I think, both of these types of experiences personally, that was really where my interest landed me, uh, is studying these transcendent experiences. By completely changing his environment, Albert has gotten himself back on track. He's finding a home, finding a path in academia. For him, Palo Alto is a complete culture reset. He's surrounded by a community focused on innovation. It's completely foreign to his life in Miami. To match this new environment, it's almost like Albert needs to redefine himself. And it comes from Abraham Maslow, the psychologist Albert mentions. He defines the hierarchy of needs everyone must have to fulfill their personhood. He starts with basic needs, moves up to psychological needs, and finally ends with the needs of self-fulfillment. Palo Alto gave Albert the space to rebuild his hierarchy towards newfound purpose. Now that he's in an environment where he can reach self-fulfillment, Albert can start finding his niche in research. And that's where psychedelics come into play. Did you see the brain on substances like psychedelics and meditation as like two paths to a similar destination? Or did you see them as separate? And like, or, or was that even a focus of like what you were trying to discover? Well, I guess I started off more just approaching it from the angle of what are these experiences and how do people view them? And so I just uh, started interviewing people and asking them about their experiences uh, that they consider transcendent and how they kind of define that and what brought them to those experiences and what they took away from those experiences. That did kind of lead me to what you're suggesting here, which is that people were reporting different types of experiences being transcendent or kind of lifting them out of their normal sense of self. For some people, it was, you know, drugs uh, were the trigger or the catalyst for those experiences, whether it was ayahuasca or MDMA or LSD. Other people talked to me about experiences they had when they were in the midst of a meditation practice or a contemplative practice like uh, you know, being at a meditation retreat. Um, other people talk to me about experiences that they had in nature, uh, being uh, out in the woods or at a waterfall or something like that. And so that kind of gave me the sense that, yes, there is uh, different ways of eliciting this type of experience, maybe where the mind kind of shuts itself down in a way or shuts up for a few minute, minutes or a few moments. And in that kind of quiet, there was uh, sort of a deeper type of experience that could unfold. Um, but yeah, I think that definitely are different ways of getting to that place. And that, that was sort of what kind of came out of that work, this uh, understanding that I guess I wasn't, of course, the first person to think, you know, to think this or to come to this conclusion that, that, yeah, there are lots of different ways of kind of reaching that, that top of the mountain. 
So understanding that, that top of the mountain scenario and diving into that research, how did you become involved with the work being done at John Hopkins? You know, as you kind of are coming out of that uh, period, well, I was encouraged by a teacher, uh, Glenn Hartelius, to go to publish some work. Uh, and so after publishing, I was like, okay, well, I guess the other thing that academic people do is go to conferences and present these types of findings. So I went to a conference um, in 2012 that was in Tucson. I was talking about my interviews that I had done with people about their transcendent experiences and you know what they took away from those and kind of how those uh, experiences were elicited and so forth. One of the keynote speakers uh, for the conference was there and she had come to hear some of the talks that were in that session. And afterwards, uh, we had dinner, we chatted, and uh, she then was, you know, like, well, I'm giving a talk in a couple of days, you should come see it, which I did. And that was the talk that uh, Catherine McLean gave, kind of explaining how uh, psilocybin and mystical experiences around psilocybin are creating these lasting changes in people's personality. Particularly, it was um, increasing people's openness to experience after they had these big, you know, big psilocybin sessions at the laboratory. And yeah, that was very exciting uh, to be, to see that work being done. Wasn't really plugged into the fact that people were reopening the books on psychedelics in the scientific setting, particularly like in a serious way. Why is that? Well, you know, the reason that um, I wasn't, you know, thinking that that was com- making a comeback of any sort was really just the big taboo uh, that had existed for decades around these substances. And, you know, that goes back to the 70s and Nixon administration and the war on drugs. But, you know, when those things happened back around 1970 and 71, and, you know, these drugs were outlawed, um, you know, it put a pretty clear line in the sand that, you know, this stuff is not uh, good and it's uh, you know, dangerous and gave it this baggage that made it pretty much off limits in the sort of scientific setting. In 2012, when I met Catherine McQueen and she was talking about this, these findings, it sort of put me onto the work that was happening here, which was specifically, you know, what happens when you give people these high-dose psychedelic experiences and, um, you know, the findings being remarkably positive around not only the safety, but um, the types of very meaningful and sometimes spiritual experiences that people would sometimes have. And of course, you know, that was very much in line with what I was studying in graduate school, you know, these transcendent experiences and how they could contribute to mental health. You know, I met Catherine at this conference and she said, well, we have openings, we have opportunities for people like you if you want to come do work with us. And I, you know, kind of thought that it was uh, a lark. I didn't think it was really going to go anywhere, but I said, okay. And, you know, I explained to them what I had done and what I was interested in. And, you know, they uh, decided to take a chance and they uh, gave me, you know, uh, opportunity to come uh, interview. And I just got all my stuff and moved to Baltimore. Then, you know, the work that they've been doing, I started to sort of contribute to that. Joining the Behavioral Pharmacology Research Team at Johns Hopkins gave Albert a platform to conduct his research and reinvigorate psychedelics in medicine. And this is huge, especially considering the path we've taken to get here. We've touched on this in previous episodes, but there was a massive amount of research being done with psychedelics in the 60s at institutions like Harvard. But one Harvard researcher, Timothy Leary, was a bit too cavalier with how he conducted the science. He was telling everyone to take the drug and he was giving it to students. His mantra was turn on, tune in and drop out, which didn't exactly make a case for the drug in the government's eyes. So on October 24th, 1968, possession of LSD was made illegal in the United States. Because of the stigma largely created by Leary and others like him, researchers were set back nearly half a century. But the tide is turning. Decades of reputable studies and advocacy from organizations such as the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies has started the long process of destigmatization. Albert and the Johns Hopkins team have been able to take great strides thanks to a new worldwide interest in psychedelics and the large endowments that come with it. 
Can you describe maybe your first impactful psilocybin session that you had with a patient? Just like walk me through what the process is like. I mean, you know, it really varies you know, so greatly just because every person is so different. And also the studies that we work you know, on are different populations. So a lot of the work that I've done is focused specifically on um, working with people who are trying to quit smoking and you know, studying psilocybin as an aid in the treatment of addiction. So that looks, you know, very different, for instance, uh, from other studies I've worked on where, you know, you're giving high dose psilocybin to a priest, for instance, and you're trying to understand, you know, what is the impact of that? A priest? Yeah. On their spiritual life. Like a Catholic priest? Yeah. Like what kind of priest? Is that allowed? I don't know if he asked permission. I guess you can always go back and, uh, you know, uh, do confession later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That was actually a particularly interesting set of psilocybin sessions that we ran with that gentleman. But, you know, that's part of a study that hasn't been published yet, but it's um, still, you know, uh, crunching the numbers. But um, it's a religious professional study where we tried to get a bunch of people from different religious spiritual backgrounds who were like priests or rabbis or monks or nuns kind of interacting with their experience and whether or not that had, like you said, these sort of takeaways that were valuable or of use to them uh, with their congregations. Yeah, I will say specifically with the, um, for instance, with this one priest that I'm thinking about that I work with, um, you know, he had a, some very powerful sessions, uh, but one of the things that's a common theme when uh, people have these really difficult experiences sometimes is that they think that they're dying um, or that they're afraid that they're dying you know, during the session, which can be you know, terrifying, of course. As a result, we always prepare people and say, look, you might think that you're dying. You might think that you're going crazy. You know, this is part of the drug effects. Just kind of stay with it. We try to move through the process. We'll support you, and eventually that will pass. And you know, usually it's very dramatic because um, it's almost like, you know, a person jumping out of an airplane or something. You know, there, there's a lot of fear and, and anxiety that can come along with it. Um, but I remember with this uh, gentleman, you know, we were in session. It was uh, Richards and I and, and uh, this participant from the study. And uh, he was laying on the couch, which is a sort of normal default position. And he just kind of popped up and said, bye, guys. What? You know, he's like, Bye. And we were like, what do you mean by? He's like, oh, well, I'm dying. And so he was very matter of fact about it. We're like, what do you mean? He's like, well, I'm just dying now, so I'm going. But it's okay. It's okay. I'm just going to let go. It's fine. And, you know, sure enough, he kind of moved through that experience. And, you know, there's often a sort of feeling of death and then rebirth after these types of experiences. So this feeling of being reborn uh, is not unusual when people can go through it in a smooth fashion. And he did, and uh, it was just one piece of it. Um, you know, and he had this, uh, a couple of sessions, but you know, I think these experiences, again, not only are they tremendously powerful for people, but they're also very interesting just from a psychological standpoint of you know, what's going on when we give people these types of drugs that they think that they're dying. How does he talk about that experience? I mean, post-experience is really, uh, you know, positive about the experience. You know, it was not frightening. It was a positive growth and learning experience. It was something that, um, he says, you know, put him in touch with his spirituality and his, I mean, another part of the experience was that he felt like he was able to, you know, directly see and speak with Jesus Christ. Also, as well as, you know, being in contact with, um, his ancestors or family members that had passed away. Um, and so that was incredibly powerful for him. And also, I think, uh, you know, the way that he described it was being affirming uh, in terms of his work as a, a spiritual practitioner. It was something that to him was like, deeply meaningful and affirming, um, but also, you know, very, uh, I think, uh, valuable is something that, as far as I could tell, is something that he would kind of cherish uh, afterwards. This was a man who could cherish his experience with death. Considering Albert's studies in Greek philosophy, it makes sense why this story stood out to him. Some of the most prominent ancient Stoics believed that the key to living a happy life was accepting one's death. One philosopher, Epicurus, famously said that death and pain are not frightening, 
It's the fear of pain and death we need to fear. To become comfortable with death, another philosopher, Seneca, even recommended that we rehearse it every night when we go to sleep. He thought this would test whether or not we are content with how we are living. In a letter to a friend, he wrote that the one who puts the finishing touches on their life each day never feels short of time. This priest clearly did not feel short of time. He didn't even try to cram in more words than by guys after ending his life. Albert was getting a front row seat at the most crucial telling moments of life. But for many people, this moment could be far from peaceful. I'm curious, like with the, the following sessions, like is there a different interpretation of what seems like death? That is a specific theme that comes up in a lot of people's experience, you know, this feeling of fear of dying. But uh, one experience, you know, that could be a big feature of the experience and another one that could not play into it at all, um, where you don't think about or have anything ego death related. It's not like a thing that happens like reliably every time you give them a dose of psilocybin. Because for some people, it's almost this you know, agonizingly painful, frightening, terrifying process. Like you're ripping them out of their body. Um, uh, and you know, in shamanic uh, kind of literature, there's this experience that's kind of a thematic, uh, you know, being ripped apart. You know, like having your body torn to shreds. Um, it's sort of like a part of the ego death. And for other people, it's more peaceful and like, you know, like an almost ecstatic experience. So kind of leaving your body and kind of going up to this, you know, place, this light or, you know, this something other worldly realm. So, you know, it can kind of look a lot of different ways. You know, we talked about letting go and kind of going with the flow and, and surrendering and all that kind of thing. But, when it's happening, it's it's really hard though because it's kind of like talking about riding a bike, and until you're actually on the bicycle and your feet are going, and there's a risk of falling over, it's not really real. It's more abstract. How do we let go? How on earth do we look at an entirely unknown existence and say goodbye to our deepest attachments? Taoism, as mentioned before, is a philosophy that tries to answer this question. While the mystery of death might sound terrifying to some, according to Lao Tzu, Taoism's founder, we are already moving through mystery in every moment of our day. In his main text, the Tao Te Ching, he says that life is a series of natural and spontaneous changes. Don't resist them. Let reality be reality. So if we get out of our thoughts and step into the ever-changing present, we can train ourselves to become comfortable with the unknown. While it's extremely difficult for many of us to step into the present moment, you can imagine how much less daunting it might be after conquering a death-like experience during a psychedelic trip. As we're about to hear, finding the ability to let go can change even the most fixed mindsets. Were there people that struggled and then eventually like, like struggle on the first dose and then eventually did make the plunge? And then how did they talk about it after that experience? Yeah, I can think of the lady particularly who really struggled at first. And it wasn't necessarily like a struggle with kind of facing ego death, but it was really more like a struggle of letting go into the experience and kind of relaxing and, and allowing it to happen. She also, you know, was simultaneously quitting smoking, which is also very difficult and uncomfortable. Mm. You know, we talk about getting in our own way. Um, like when you're overthinking it, like uh, if you're trying to learn how to dance or something, I'm very clumsy. But when I'm trying to like, learn how to do something like a dance or a movement, I, I can trip over my own feet. And I think she had that sense with her first session of, you know, trying to make it a certain way and feeling like it was not mm. happening and she was just not doing it right particularly when they hear about all these sessions in the media about it, they think, oh, this is what it's supposed to be like. And when it, you know, they're having an experience that's different from their expectations, and yeah. that can be very challenging for them. And they can think, oh, I'm doing this wrong, or, you know, what's wrong with me? You know, that first session was predominated by that type of struggle. Um, in the second session, there was a moment of vision and experience where she saw... Uh, herself kind of hunched over, hiding behind her house in this place where she would usually go smoke to be like out of sight of her kids. 
um, and seeing this sort of flower come up out of the ground, and it was like her higher self, maybe, or uh, something to her that really kind of was communicating to her uh, that you know she was bigger than the smoking habit. She was bigger than you know, kind of putting her in touch with um, this other bigger picture view of the world and of herself, which then kind of let her let go. So you can almost think of uh, these sessions sometimes uh, building towards uh, a climax and then uh, there's a resolution. And sometimes I feel like the climax can kind of get stuck when people are, you know, having trouble uh, letting go. And so I felt like Thankfully, with this lady, we were able to have another session. And, you know, in that second session, she did get that resolution that, that was so useful for her to then, you know, feel better and also, you know, walk away with, I think, some substantial benefits. While benefits differ from person to person, what seems to have empowered this woman was the opportunity to step outside of herself. Thinking back on the childhood memories Albert shared, this was something he could totally relate to. Spending his adolescence immersed in foreign lands of sci-fi and the vivid imagery of Fitzgerald, he understood the power of perspective shift. That through the eyes of a protagonist or narrator, he could rethink and grow his own worldview. This woman's hallucination allowed her to do the same, to remove herself from her own mind, examine the way she was thinking, and let go of the harmful thoughts and beliefs. While we've all agreed on the benefits of reading for a long time, more and more people are opening their eyes to the life-changing benefits of psychedelic treatment. Where do you think psychedelic research is now? And where do you hope to see it in five, 10 years? The cat is out of the bag, if you will. There's a lot of uh, work going on here at Hopkins, of course, but there's other centers opening up in different parts of the world and different parts of the country. Um, and so I think there's, you know, uh, a lot of interest in seeing where this might go next. Um, you know, some of the questions that are outstanding still, you know, are you know, how do these drugs work and how do we use them yeah. in a therapeutic setting in a way that's, um, you know, optimizing um, safety and effectiveness and minimizing risk. Um, and, you know, where can we use this uh, and where is this not going to be helpful? And so... I think there's a pretty good consensus now that um, with depression, um, with addictions, there's a pretty positive uh, potential for benefits. And you've seen a couple of papers come out uh, from our lab last year, or out from the group in London, um, looking at you know very good effects in people with depression using psilocybin. Um, and you know there's more work forthcoming from our lab and from other groups. So, using psilocybin and treating addictions. So I think that's the type of work that um, we hope is going to lead to uh, federal approval for uh, use of psilocybin as a medicine in a therapeutic setting. My hope is that all the work that we've been doing here and that uh, lots of people have been working on for a long time is going to culminate in uh, opening of medical and social uh, acceptance of using psychedelics um, and really kind of changing the way that we think about mental health care and providing mental health care so that you know, these types of experiences, rather than being kind of taboo or you know outside the box, can be considered part of just the human experience. And not only that, but something that can be very healthy and helpful and, and beneficial for people. Legalizing psychedelics could potentially benefit a wide pool of people. But first and foremost, researchers like Albert are fighting for the people whose lives depend on it, for those gripped by lethal forms of addiction, and for those imprisoned by the agony of psychological disorders, psychedelics can restore the freedom and joy that we are all entitled to. For too long, taboo around mental health and drug use has left these individuals with few options for hope. Amidst what many are considering a mental health crisis, the founders in this series 
are modern-day superheroes. They are the brave few who have attempted to investigate the neglected, mysterious dimensions of health to ambitiously bridge the gaps between spirituality, psychology, and neuroscience. With their superhero sense of empathy, they've had the strength to ignore societal disapproval and dedicate their work to the good of others. Douglas George, Julie Holland, Jonathan Moreno, Matthew Johnson, and Albert Garcia Romeu have taught us that revolutionary change doesn't just take brilliance. It takes radical compassion. See you next week. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, Aaron Devereaux, Nicholas Guzman, Ashley Jimenez, Tomas Renteria, Nathan Tower, Callan Turnbull, Lauren Yamada, and Maura Lynch. Our outreach and research lead is Ankita Nambiar, with support from Miriam Arden, Sarah Hobson, Lisa Le, Kenny Ong, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, and Marie Vaughn. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Natalie Agnew, Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Harrison Duffy, Alexandra Huntalis Adams, Kylie McCreary, Beatrice Phillips, and Virna Seminario. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Sohail Amartya, Tiffany Dang, Anna Rivelli, and Allison Wong. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence, with support from Melanie Mack and Linda Tapia. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.